us online. We're grateful for you. Let's get our Bibles out and open to the book of Ephesians. Come on now. How about John chapter 4? Your Bible's just stuck at Ephesians. Like you're, every time you flip the page, it just goes back to Ephesians. Amen. John chapter 4. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, just grab the one in front of you. Open to page 984. John chapter 4. Uh, a couple things as you're turning there. Um, of course, next week is the fall festival. We're super excited about that. It's going to be amazing. Um, those of you who want a place to serve, uh, all you need to do is sign up out at the Welcome Center. There is a sign up. There's a clipboard out there with a list. Just put your name and contact information. We'll contact you. And There's plenty of plenty of areas to serve in. Uh, we're expecting uh, somewhere between two and 3,000 people. Could be more than 3,000. We, we don't ever know exactly how many will show up, but it's going to be amazing. It's one of the most amazing things we get to do as a faith family together as we serve our community. So make sure you're a part of that. Also, there's a few spots, I think, still open for the marriage retreat. So if you want to participate in that, you need to hurry up and sign up for that because it's about to close. Uh, That's November 10th and 11th. So first come, first serve. If you want to be a part of that, um, make sure you do so. All right, what we're going to do so we're going to spend a few weeks in this chapter of Scripture and some of the Scriptures that surround it. We're going to look at this passage that's familiar to us, and we're going to think about some things. It's a great time of year for us to pause and think about these things. Um, if, if, this is, if you're new around here, this is the season of the year where um, I think every season in the life of our family is, uh, has its high points and different Uh, wonderful aspects, but this particular season when we come to the end of the year is one where we really, as a faith family, are focused on others. And that will begin next weekend, you'll see, and then as we move from there through the rest of the year, much of what we do as a church is very others-focused. And that's the, the, we, we feel passionately that the best way to celebrate the birth of Christ at Christmas and during the holidays is to be as much like Christ as possible. And so that's going to require us to think differently than the world thinks at this time of year. Amen? All right, let's read together because we've got a lot of work to do. John chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples... He left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field of Jacob, where Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman 
said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For the Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus answered her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. Verse 15, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I may not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where the people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called the Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I am, I who speak to you am he. Verse 27, then his disciples came back and they marveled that he was talking with the woman. But no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, See, a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming towards him. Now go down to verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. Verse 40. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Now, I want to point something out to you. Is it not astonishing that the longest recorded conversation that we have between Jesus and any person is this. This unknown, unnamed, unimportant woman who lives in the middle of nowhere, 
of all of the dialogue we have between Jesus and various people, the Bible devotes the most real estate to this conversation. And get your listening guides out. This is what it makes me understand, is that her story reminds me that my story matters. The fact that the Bible takes so much time and and gives us so much detail about this conversation is a reminder of the importance of story and the importance of conversation. But it also means some other things. I mean, just on the surface, first of all, it tells us that what's contained in this passage is of the utmost importance. Second of all, it communicates how much conversation matters. The Bible could have easily said Jesus stopped by, went to a well, talked to a woman, said a few things, and then went on. Let's get on to more important things. But that's not what it says. It, it dives into the specifics of this dialogue, this conversation between Jesus and this woman. And thirdly, I think it it means that what's being taught here, what the Bible wants us to learn here, cannot be reduced to just a simple phrase or a couple of sentences. And so there must be a lot here for us to garner because the Bible is telling us that by the amount of space that it's given. This isn't something that we can just put on a plaque on our walls. It's more expansive than that. See, I think that what's happening here is the Bible is casting this shadow for us to begin to see that faith is an invitation to a lifelong conversation with Jesus. This this woman that Jesus seeks out and initiates conversation with that ultimately ends in faith, among other things, as we'll see in the coming weeks. Faith is more than just a momentary event, isn't it? It's an ongoing conversation. I want us to see how Jesus... was in between. Look back at verse 1. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was making and baptizing more disciples than John, so here would have been a great opportunity for Jesus to dive into some controversy and to straighten some things out. And there's a great lesson here that I don't have time to get into, but the lesson is simply that not everything needs to be straightened out. Because you know what Jesus does? He just leaves. I think it's a valuable practice for you. You know what frustrates me? People who feel the need to straighten out everything that's crooked. That really frustrates me. And you know what? It frustrates all the people around you. When you treat everything as equal importance, 
It is a relational disaster, and you have no effectiveness because no one wants to hear what you have to say. It's true. A great indicator of wisdom is just the ability to be able to tell the difference between what is important and what is not important and everything in between. Moving right along. Verse 3. So Jesus left Judea and departed again for Galilee. Now this is important. Jesus is going from Judea to Galilee. It's about a 40-mile, give or take, journey. It's probably going to take four days. Judea. It's a place where Jesus' ministry was really taking off, really gaining a lot of traction. It's where he was when he... Look, he... If I would have been one of Jesus' original disciples, when he told me we were leaving Judea, I would have said, that's a mistake. We should stay here. Big things are happening. Because big things seem to be, be happening there. But Jesus leaves. To go to Galilee. That's his home base. That's where... 11 of the 12 disciples were from. That's the place where most of his parables were spoken in Galilee. The majority of his miracles were done in Galilee. In fact, what we know, if you, if you read on to the end of the chapter, when you get to verse 45, you find out that when he eventually gets to Galilee after this event, he has a, there's a very warm reception for him there. That's sort of his home base. So he's leaving a place where he, he was seeing great success, and he's going to a place where there's great familiarity and comfort, at least for the disciples. And I think it's important for us to understand that he's in between two places. And the reason why I want to make much of this is because most of our lives are lived in between. And I think it's important to understand this. Most of life is spent in between. See, it's in between where life gets messy. We all have this tendency. We find ourselves somewhere and we have this expectation of getting somewhere else. And usually what happens, those, those blocks drop in our lives, you know, at, at these key big moments and events in our life. And when we, when we reach one of these moments, we then immediately look at this next moment down the line in the future where we want to get to. It's, think of it as it's the space between where I was and where I think I'm going. Now, I know you don't fully get what I'm talking about, so let me just help you. Because we all live in this place. It's like the place between my wedding day and sitting in matching rocking chairs on the front porch with gray hair. I think I'm going to get there. But there are so many things in between those two places. Most of life, you know where life gets messy? In between. In between. 
between the birth of children and the arrival of grandchildren. See, there's most of life between the moment Jesus saves us and the moment we're dancing with him in glory. We live in between. And that's where all the, that's where all the difficulty comes. That's where the, the challenges come. I was reminded of this this morning as I grabbed this tie to put on. I realized this is the tie that I wore when my daughter got married. She sewed a patch on the back and it says, Dad, I loved you first. And when I looked at that patch, I just thought, of all the things that were in between the birth of my first child and that day she got married. And then when she got married, I thought about, well, when she's going to have kids. And then when she, you see, and so it, I, when I get to one thing, I'm, all, I'm thinking of this other thing. But how oftentimes... is where we think we're going, not where we're going. Or what we think it's going to be like is not what it's going to be like. You see, that's, that's why it gets messy in the middle, because life is, is it's unpredictable. In between is where we're asking questions like, how did I end up here? How, what do, how, how long is this going to last? Why do I feel stuck? How do I change? Is this as good as it's going to get? Is this the way it's always going to be? And these are the, the places where Jesus tends to show up, isn't it? He shows up in between. He shows up in between jobs, in between kids, in between our hopes and dreams, in between sickness and health, in between confusion and clarity. It's in between divorce and remarriage. In between the cross and the new heaven and the new earth. The more life gets messy, the more life gets hard, the more likely we are to spend our in-between focused on ourselves. See, when we find ourselves in between, we get very inwardly focused and self-consumed. The fact that we're in between almost becomes this built-in excuse in our flesh to just, well, I would do this or I'd like to do that, but I can't because I'm, I'm in between. I'm in the middle of this messy situation or trial or difficulty or whatever the case may be. And we become focused on ourselves and our, and our problems. And that's just what we do. I mean, that's what I do. That's what you, that's what we do. But should we do that? See, some of you, you're in between and you you say to yourself, it's, 
It's because you got yourself into this mess that you're in. And you think it's up to you to be the one to get yourself out. Some of you, when you're in between, you're thinking that the reason you're there, the reason you're stuck, isn't your fault at all. It's someone else's mistakes that have put you where you are. It's the sins of, of others that are weighing you down and keeping you from moving forward. But we all feel powerless to change our circumstances in between. Because here's the thing. If the past has taught me anything, if the past has taught you anything, it's that when we look forward, we're not in control. We're not. We like to think that we are, but in between has a way of shattering that false idea. Well, Jesus was in between Judea and Galilee, and I think that's important in this conversation. I think it's important as we will begin to look at the, maybe the, the way the disciples filtered this season. But notice what he does when he's in between in verse 4. The Bible says, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. And so what jumps out at me is that Jesus uses his in-between for the eternity of others because that's his father's will. He's not just leaving one place and going to another place. He knows that he's going to Galilee. He knows he has an idea, and of course he's God. But in his humanity, he, he, he knows what's, what's there. And he, but it's not just I'm here and I'm going there. He leverages the in-between. And the reason he does that is because it's the Father's will. In, in Hebrews chapter 1, the Bible says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. See, Part of the passage that we didn't read that we'll look at in the weeks to come where Jesus has this dialogue back and forth with his disciples in their confusion about why they're in Samaria and why he's having a conversation with this woman, he tells them that his food is to do the will of the Father. See, if you've ever wondered what God would say, look at what Jesus said. If you've ever wondered what what would God do? Look at what Jesus did. That's how you know. If you've ever wondered, well, what are God's priorities? Look at what the priorities were of Jesus because that's what God is. See, in John chapter 14, the Bible says, whoever has seen me, Jesus said, has seen the Father. He did the Father's will so that we would know the Father's will. 
So in verse 4, when the Bible says, and he had to pass through Samaria, what makes that so amazing is all the parts of it that aren't true. He had to pass through Samaria, not because it geographically made sense, not because it, it practically made sense, because it was the Father's will. See, going through Samaria for innumerable reasons made the journey far more difficult, far more risky, and far more inconvenient. But the Bible says that Jesus had to go this way, that it was necessary for him to go where? To go to Samaria. Now, this is the capital of a northern kingdom in the Old Testament. It's a place of despicable heritage. I won't bore you with all the gory details. Let's just suffice it to say for today that Samaritans were half Jews inbred with the Assyrians. They were hated by the Israelites and for good reason, because of what the Bible even tells us. They claimed to worship Yahweh, the God of the Bible, but yet they embraced all of the false gods of the Assyrians and committed atrocious, atrocious sin and idolatry. The Bible says just an example in 2 Kings 17. However, every nation continued to make gods of its own and put them in the shrines of the high places which the Samaritans had made. They were known for their construction and worship of false gods and spread it all over the place. Some of the harshest words in Scripture are in Isaiah 28 where the Bible says that God says that their tables, the stench of Samaria can be smelled by all the surrounding nations. The table of the Samaritans is covered in vomit. It's a tough chapter to read. Samaritans were people who were stuck in horrible conditions terrible situation, hated by their Jewish neighbors, knew just enough about Judaism and Israel to embrace different facets of it, but all the while being utterly assured of this one thing, that they had zero chance of ever being welcomed in. They were the epitome of outsiders, cultural and religious rejects. Look at verse 6. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was the sixth hour. So it's high noon, Jesus, wearied. He's tired. He's thirsty. It's hot. It's been a long season. He's been 
busy, so many people needing things from him and wanting things from him. And, and yet in the midst of his exhaustion, his need for relief and a break, what we see is that the love of God is not only inclusive, not only inviting, but it's immeasurable. It's, it's immeasurable because it's incomparable. There's nothing to compare it to to even quantify it. And you think to yourself, well, you know, wow, okay, that's not that earth-shattering. It is if you ask yourself, well, is your love fit that category? Because mine certainly doesn't. My, my love is not inclusive, inviting, and immeasurable. In fact, there are a lot of times where my love can be exclusive. I can be worried about my things and my agenda or my schedule or my this or my that. There are times when I'm not inviting. When I'm exhausted, burned out. When my tank is empty, I'm, I'm, I'm short with people or even rude to people. not Jesus. When he's wearied and tired and exhausted, he moves in. He moves in. He doesn't use the in-between as an excuse to keep going, to get to the destination, to stay on the track. See, Jesus had such care for others that he wearied himself in loving them. And even when he was weary, what did he do? He kept on loving. And the more I thought about this, the more I realized, you know, if, if we're not wearied in loving others, then we're not likely to accomplish much of the purpose for which we are created for, are we? I mean, as the Son of God, He's completely self-sufficient and in need of nothing. But what we see is the humanity of Jesus in that He grew tired and He was thirsty and exhausted and needing of rest. So that when we find ourselves in those situations and we pray to God in our exhaustion, our frustration, or our, our need, God understands because God's been there. You see, He's been there. He knows. So it's like although my love is not like His love, even though He has a love completely different from my love, His love is such that He went to the nth degree to be able to understand the lack in my love and in your love. You see that? You see how he is? Done for us in so many ways what he does for this woman? In verse 7, the Bible says, A woman from Samaria came to draw water. 
And Jesus says to her, give me a drink. Now here we meet a woman that as we get to know her, we realize, wow, now she is in between. She's definitely in between. She was in a place nobody wants to be, a place nobody sets out to be. We don't know why five men would have chosen her to be their wife and then discarded her. We don't know if she was able to have children. The Bible doesn't tell us. We don't know how old she was. The Bible doesn't tell us. But I can tell you some things about her. I can tell you this. When she was a little girl, this wasn't the dream in her heart. This isn't the path she was hoping for. What we do know is that over time, her story became one of brokenness, rejection, and hopelessness. And it's a place all of us can in some way or another relate to, can't we? When we realize that we're not going where we thought we were going or the path to get to where we're going is not the way we thought it was going to be or whatever the case may be, we find ourselves in between. She was in between. She was an outsider. Jesus creates the opportunity for belonging so that people might come to believe in him and therefore become like him. See, what Jesus does is Jesus doesn't force her into anything, doesn't force her to do anything. What we're going to see is all Jesus does is opens the door to opportunity. See, I, I have spent chunks of my life feeling like an outsider. And here's what I know about feeling like an outsider. That you do not see the possibility of being an insider. You don't, you don't even try because it's pointless. In my case, I felt like an outsider because of the circumstances that I was just born into. And so I, I can remember as a boy growing up, Sometimes I'll see people in difficult situations and it will occur to me that I'm looking at them the way people used to look at me. And it breaks my heart. I catch myself being so removed 
from being an outsider that if I'm not careful, I can forget that I was. Jesus creates opportunities, and it doesn't matter who you are. See, outsiders come in a lot of different shapes and sizes. That's what the Bible wants us to understand. We could just talk about this woman and how she was an outsider, and I could relate a lot of my story to her, and I could, I could tell you things and explain things to you, and we could connect on some levels. But the danger in that is that some of you in the room would leave here and think, you know, that was touching and great but I don't know that I could relate to that but that would be wrong because you have to you have to we have to back up a second and look at the context in which the Bible gives us this story in the first place if you go back to the previous chapter if you look at chapter three let's remember how chapter three starts with another outsider Verse 1 says, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Remember him? It's interesting that the Bible puts these two conversations up against each other so that we can see the vast array of ways in which we find ourselves to be an outsider. This Nicodemus, he was a Pharisee. He was part of the most respected of all religious people. That's the part of the group he was. He was a ruler. He was part of the Sanhedrin, the highest ruling body among the Jews of the day. He was a scholar. Just the fact that his name was Nicodemus tells you this, that he came from an affluent family because he uses this Greek name, which would have told everybody, this is Nicodemus, someone of importance who comes from affluence and wealth. Yeah, but he's an outsider. Because verse 2 says, This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know. We who? You got, who's in your pocket? It's just you and Jesus. We know that you are a teacher come from God, and no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. See, Nicodemus is an outsider. The difference between him and the woman, he doesn't know he's an outsider. He comes to Jesus. Now, he's seen enough of Jesus to be impressed enough that he's willing to risk a meeting with him, but he's not impressed enough to risk a meeting with him in the daytime. So he comes to him at night so no one would know. And do you think Jesus is just going to let him go in his confusion? No chance. Jesus immediately addresses his outsidedness. Nicodemus is in between, doesn't even realize it. Jesus answers him and says, truly, truly, I say to you. That means absolutely, positively, undoubtedly, here's the deal. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, if you continue to read that dialogue... That's where the whole context of John 3.16 comes in. It's this expansive dialogue about salvation. It goes all the way to verse 21. It's all red letters. Jesus expounding on 
salvation and trying to open up the mind of this man, Nicodemus. But here's the point I want you to see. I want you to see the, the, the stark contrast in these two outsiders and how the in-between sometimes can, can be painful and noticed and addressed and sometimes we can just be oblivious. Nicodemus was a man at the top of life who was admired by everyone. The Samaritan woman was immoral. And because of her bad reputation, she had to get water from the well in the heat of the day when the other women had already gone. He was a man. She was a woman. He had a prestigious name. She doesn't even have a name that we know. He was a Jew. She, on the other hand, a Samaritan. Complete opposites. He was a scholar. She was uneducated. He was of noble heritage. She had a shameful past. He was powerful. She was powerless. I mean, it goes on and on and on. He comes at night to protect his good reputation. Because she had a bad reputation, she meets Jesus in the middle of the day. He comes seeking Jesus. Jesus comes seeking her. Both complete opposites. So why does the Bible give us these two contrasts side by side? It clearly is so that we would be able to grasp the reality that the gospel is for everyone. It's for everyone. Everyone. Every Nicodemus, every Samaritan woman at the well, and everyone in between. But not only that, so that we would see that God's plan for discipleship is not something but someone. Someone. See, Jesus allows his time, his mission, his personal space to be interrupted so that the opportunity for life change could happen through this one conversation. And it was a, it was a, a hallmark of Jesus' ministry to do things like this. And so that when we get to the end of the Gospels, and Jesus gives us his parting words, our marching orders, they only make sense in the context of what we've seen Jesus do, the way we've seen Jesus relate to people, the way what Jesus has taught us about who God is and what he's like. But you see, here's what happens to church people. Church people read familiar words in the Bible and just become like Nicodemus. What, 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 let's look just for a moment at Jesus' words to us. Every time I say these verses... It's like I can hear your, your minds 
clicking off. Click, 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 click. Because you, you know the next word that's going to come out of my mouth. And yet, do we? Do we? Jesus says, all authority in heaven. Click, 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 click. And on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, he says, I am with you always to the end of the age. Why does our love fail to be like Jesus is so oftentimes? Why do we leverage our in-between so oftentimes for ourselves instead of others? Why do we feel justified? Think about this. I'm you, we, I'm not talking to you, I'm talking to us. Why is it that when we get in a valley, we're looking around to see who's going to come help us. We're not looking for who we can help. Why? Why? Because we don't understand the Great Commission. They're just words. We're like Nicodemus. We know enough to know, oh, there's something there. See, so oftentimes we become ineffective evangelists. Why? Because we're lazy and self-centered. That's why. Because we're in between. And when we're, when we're where we think we ought to be, oh, well, then we might, you know, do a little of this or do a little of that. But when we're wearied from the journey in between, we're not looking for somebody else. That, that's when my love fails to be like Jesus' love. Is when I'm wearied, when I'm in between. That's when we lose sight of. See, we're so focused on this thing. I'm just telling you. You live long enough, you realize that that moment when that little girl is born and you don't know how in the world you're going to raise her or disciple her or teach her, but you have all these big hopes and dreams in your mind and all these things in your, your head and all these and all of you that are in your first little go-round and you got little kids. And, and trust me, I've been there. I know you're ignorant. And us old people will straighten you right on out. Because you ain't tiptoeing through the tulips to get to that wedding day. That's not how that works. And when you get here, if you get here, 
You know, you get that moment when you pull the, the tie off the rack and you look at that and tears run down your face of joy and gratitude and thankfulness. But here's the thing, the blood, sweat, and tears that happened in between. And so many opportunities to just focus inward. So oftentimes we're just focused on our needs and the needs of our children. We're not thinking about outsiders. We know the Great Commission, don't we? Or do we? See, the bottom line is when I'm wearied and focused on me, here's the truth. The truth is I just don't care enough about the eternal destiny of the people that I pass on the path when I'm in between. Sometimes I don't even see them because I'm so focused on where I'm trying to get. So what's the first step? Well, the first step, I think, is to just realize that we don't care as much as we ought to care about the things we ought to care about. Now, that doesn't solve anything, but at least it moves us in the right direction. At least it opens us up to, I need, I need love like Jesus. It's got to be more like Jesus. I got to stop justifying. I got to realize that if Jesus had merely come and lived his life, and died on a cross to open up a way of salvation. If, if that's what the whole point was. Well he would have never gone to Samaria. See here's the thing. The thing is, is that Jesus. Turned his face like a flint. And marched towards Jerusalem. Knowing what awaited him there. But even though the greatest moment in all of eternity awaited him he still had time for the outsiders there I am I get to the hospital I'm stressed out to the max heart heavy don't know what I'm about to walk into but the bits of information that I've gotten about the situation that I'm about to go into is it's going to be a tough one. And so understandably, someone I love is, is hurting really bad and the people that love them is hurting really bad. And so I'm trying to get to them, right? That's my excuse. I'm trying to get to them. So I get in the, the, the elevator and I'm just focus on what am I 
what, what I'm going to say and what's going to happen and where are we at, trying to get my thoughts around, knowing that my words are going to be important, convincing myself that they're my words in the first place. How foolish of me. And suddenly there's a ding and I sort of come to and I think it's time to step off and I realize that's the wrong floor and there's someone else in the elevator with me. And I look at her and she looks at me and I'm thinking, well, this ain't my floor, lady, and they ain't but two of us, so this must be where you, you know. Well, and she's just staring at me. And I said, are you okay? And she said, no. And I said, is this your floor? And she said, yes. And it's right then I realized she can't get off the elevator. Because she knows what she's going to face. And so I say, well, why don't we just step right here? Can you step right here or just right out here and I can talk to you for a minute? So we step off the elevator and I say, what's going on? She starts explaining her situation to me and she's sobbing and crying and she doesn't know who I am and anything about me but she is in between in a bad way and she tells me her whole story and I said well can I pray with you and she said you know she kind of I could tell that wasn't what she wanted to hear. And so I thought, well, Lord, what am I going to do now? That's, I mean, that's all I got. That's all I need, but it's all I got. I mean, I'm a one-trick pony here. I mean, if Jesus ain't the solution, I'm out. But then God reminded me, it's not, it's not my words, it's his words. And she was talking about a totally different situation in her family. And I said, I mean, my mouth opened and God said, what about your dad? We weren't even talking about her dad. She never said anything about her parents. What about your dad? Man, she started bawling. Next thing I know, we're having a conversation. I said, you know why you looked that way when I asked you if I could pray for you? It's because of your dad hurt you. And you got some real father wounds. And so whenever somebody comes along and says, God the Father, you don't want anything to do with that. And I mean, she's just a pool of mush at this point. And so we go back and forth for a minute, and then I don't even know anything about this lady. God's just handling it. And then I say, okay, I'm going to pray for you. And she goes, yes. 
And then I started praying for her. And you know what? That situation that I came to the hospital for, it was still there. But the difference is that when I walked into that room, eventually, you know, my face was all poppy. And believe me, I wasn't thinking about my words. <laughs> I knew that it was him who would speak through me. He would give me what to say in the time of need. It was just a reminder to me of how easy it is for us to be consumed when we're in between. And yet God is surrounding us with people in the, in the ditch, in the valley, in the hole. And it just makes you realize, yeah, I know what it's like to be an outsider. But I also praise God found out what it's like to have the opportunity to, to belong. And it wasn't because of me, was it? See, he's talking to this woman. It's not, listen, she didn't come up to Jesus. Jesus went searching her out. She wasn't looking for him. She was just going to it was just like that lady on the elevator. She was just in the middle of a horrible situation, going to face a horrible situation. And if I would have walked out, man, what would I have missed? She wasn't looking for me. She wasn't looking for somebody to talk to, but God was looking for her. I just want us to see that the Great Commission is a command to utilize the in-between for the sake of the outsider. That's what it is. Think about the moment that God is speaking these familiar words. It is the ultimate in-between moment. He's saying to, he's saying to me and you, yes. I have all authority, and yes, I'm with you. And yes, your future is secure, and your inheritance is guaranteed. And yes, everything is going to be fine. But in between, in between the moment he's speaking these words and the moment we get to heaven with him, in between there's going to be hell all over the place. And we're never going to be effective. We're never going to be effective. If when we're wearied and in between, we're focused on ourselves. But it's so easy to do. And so I think the first thing that I want us to just respond to as we think about this whole concept of belonging. Is what God did to let you belong. What did He do? And how 
is your love different from His and why? And then it ought not be. And then if we want the best for each other, then what we would want is for all of us to utilize the in-between because that's where we live. That's where life is. Every single one of us right now is in between something. Every one of us. So let's utilize it. Let's leverage it for the glory of God. Let's stand and bow our heads. God, this morning we we just come to this time and we want to respond to what you're saying to us, Lord. We recognize that you, through your word, have communicated to us the importance of conversation. The reality that the gospel is for everyone. Everyone in every situation everyone in every circumstance, that no one is too far, too inconvenient, too lost, too gone, too broken, too anything to be saved by you. And also, Lord, when we look at these two different stories, we realize this morning that salvation is of you and not of us and that you don't force it on anyone but that we are merely your, your vessels. So what would happen if we all consciously woke up every morning with a desire to see the outsiders that we encounter and to just make known to them the opportunity to come inside the way you did with Nicodemus the way you did with this woman the way you did with me and every other born again person in this room Lord help us this morning to respond rightly to you I know there's in-between moments of confusion here. I know there are people in this room that don't know you in a saving way. But Lord, that's your business. That's not my business. But I'm available for a conversation. So you do what only you can do, and we're going to give you the glory and the praise for it. So we're going to respond in this moment. Some will just come in, in a spirit of gratitude and thankfulness. Some in brokenness and repentance. Some in everything in between. But Lord, as we respond, we do so in awe of you. Thank you, Lord, for your love for us. Thank you that in your weariness, in your in-between, it's the outsiders you're seeking. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you'd like to come and pray.